Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Living History. A little bit of a different one here. I'm out on the road, so I haven't got my recording gear with me, so the quality is not quite what we're used to from previous weeks, but hopefully it will be fine. Hopefully you'll bear with me because we've got a great episode coming up this week. Before we get started, thanks to everyone who's giving feedback about Peter Hart's Gallipoli book, The Gallipoli Evacuation. Uh, we've been really proud to bring that to you as the publishers. And if you haven't got a copy, feel free to go to our website, livinghistorytv.com and grab your copy. It's a great read, the only book that tells the story of the evacuation of Gallipoli. So well worth picking up if you are a fan of the Gallipoli story. And that actually leads us to this week's episode because I am doing something a little bit different this week. I'm doing another movie review. We've done some movie reviews in the past and they've been very well received. So I'm going to roll out some more of these as time goes on. But this was a special request. I have to apologise. I can't remember exactly who it was that asked me to do this, but it was a request that came in via social media to do a review of the Gallipoli film from 1981, the famous Peter Weir and Mel Gibson film called Gallipoli. Um, one of my favourites as a war movie, so I thought that was a great suggestion. In recent times, I've done movies that have come out, new movies that have come out, and it's good, I think, to cast back and, and review some of the older ones because I think these movies shaped a lot of what we understand about our history of war and, and history in general. So I think it's a great idea to go back in the past. So apologies, I can't remember who it was that asked me, but thank you very much for the suggestion. It was a very good one. So we're going to review the movie Gallipoli from 1981. Now, I'll kick this off by saying that I am going to reveal spoilers in this review because I think by now uh, we've probably, after 40 years, we've probably all seen the film. If you haven't, I'd suggest you go and watch it uh, and then listen to this review because I am going to reveal spoilers. And it's a movie that deserves to be watched and to be surprised if you haven't seen it. But based on this, you know, so this is my last spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the movie, go and watch it and then come back and listen to this review. But I'm pretty sure that everyone listening to this will have seen the movie. So I don't think there's any secrets that we're going to, uh, we're going to reveal. So the movie was directed by Peter Weir. It starred Mel Gibson in one of his earliest roles back when he had an Australian accent. Mark Lee, who didn't do a lot after this, but was the, the main character, Archie Hamilton. Uh, Mel Gibson's character was called Frank Dunn. Also some wonderful Australian actors, really a cross-section of great Australian actors in the from the late 70s, early 80s, Bill Hunter, Bill Kerr, a whole host of very well-known faces. So it's the thing I love about this movie is it wasn't just a great war film, and it rates probably as my favourite, if not, certainly in the top couple of favourite war films, 
but a great Aussie movie back from an era when, you know, perhaps we've lost it a little bit, the, the, the Australian movie that told a very Australian story. It was the era of the Kennedy Miller um, miniseries that came out on, on uh, Cara Breakout and Bodyline and there was wonderful Australian movies. The Anzacs miniseries came out, at, you know, soon after this movie. We saw the Light Horseman film. Just a really wonderful time for Australian movie making. And I think we've lost it a little bit. But it was led by great writers and directors, including Peter Weir. And I've seen Peter Weir interviewed about this movie. And he was inspired by two really interesting things. The first was in the late 1970s, he went to Gallipoli. So this was an era when no one was going to Gallipoli, really. And he had the whole place to himself. And he said that he walked through the hills and valleys and really got a great feeling for what the uh, for what the, the men, the Anzacs, went through at Gallipoli. But while he was there, it was a time when there was still a lot of relics lying around. I mean, there still are a lot of relics lying around at Gallipoli, but at, at this time there were heaps and heaps of relics lying around. And one of the things that he found that really inspired him was a, a glass bottle, and it was an Eno's salts bottle. Now, Eno's is still used these days to treat indigestion, but it was an Eno's salts bottle he found lying in the ground at Gallipoli, and it, it got him thinking about how that had arrived. And he realised that it was probably it had probably been sent over in a care package from Australia, sent over to the troops. And the, it just when he picked it up, he said it just really spoke to him the idea that someone back in Australia would be worried about their son or husband or brother in the trenches at Gallipoli. So, in a care parcel included a bottle of salts to be used for indigestion. Now, I'm not sure they had enough decent food that indigestion was a problem at Gallipoli, but he found it a really touching a really touching item and a really touching connection with history. And I thought that was quite fascinating because he actually included in the movie, he included a scene where I think it was Mel Gibson was opening um, a parcel, a care package from home, and included in that was a bottle of Eno salts. So I thought that was quite an interesting link with Peter Weir's inspiration for the film. Also an interesting personal link for me because in 2007, when I was in Belgium doing an excavation on a trench system there, an Australian trench system, which later was featured in the documentary um, Lost in Flanders, I actually found while I was digging there an Enos salts bottle, which was pretty remarkable. And so uh, that was one of the, the treasured items that we found during that archaeological dig. So it's funny how these small little elements of history link up together. So that was the first thing, that, that, that humble Eno Salts bottle was one of the first things that inspired Peter Weir. But also he read Charles Bean's official history of the Gallipoli campaign and there was a story in that that described the charge at the neck and that the charge at the neck is, is the famous action depicted at the end of the film. And when he was reading about the charge at the neck, there was a discussion about two brothers, the Harper brothers, uh, Wilfred and Gresley Harper, uh, who were both sadly killed in the charge. And Bean describes that witnesses said that Wilfred, the younger of the two, was last seen running forward like a schoolboy in a foot race with all the speed he could compass. And this was the idea that inspired the whole concept of this movie, Gallipoli, about two sprinters who enlist and end up fighting in the First World War and participating in the charge at the neck. So two remarkably small pieces of information that led to quite a wonderful film, the Eno Salts Bottle and the, the tragic tale of Wilfred Harper killed in the charge at the neck. So let's talk a little bit about the plot because just to probably more than anything to refresh your memories, it's probably a, a while since you've seen uh, this film. So again, just really wonderful movie making, great script, very well acted, very well directed, just a great story all around. So the opening scenes, everything, from, I won't go through the full plot, but just a couple of key points, everything from the opening, the opening mantra of the runner about his legs being steel springs and setting up that initial scene of Archie practicing running out in the, in the, the wilds of Western Australia 
Frank and Archie meeting after Archie beats Frank in a race and costs him a lot of money that he bet on himself to win that race. Their decision to travel to Perth to enlist. We should also remember the film was set in 1915. The Gallipoli landing had already occurred when the when the film began. I think the film begins in May 1915. So an interesting approach to take to the Gallipoli story that everyone at home was already aware of Gallipoli and already knew it was going on rather than the way it's normally depicted, which is the, the naive young men enlisting and then their first action is the landing at Gallipoli. This was an interesting take on the history and an accurate take on the history that a lot of young men enlisted after the Gallipoli landing because they were inspired by the example of the men who'd landed in that first wave. So Frank and Archie travel to Perth to enlist uh, in the army. Uh, unfortunately, they jump on the wrong train and end up in probably what's one of the most memorable scenes of the movie when they end up stuck in the desert. Um, with the train not coming for another two weeks. So they decide to trek 50 miles across the desert to, uh, to try and get another train. And that epic scene of trekking across the desert. Something I should mention here as well is the, um, the music, which featured pretty prominently at this, during this epic trek scene across the desert. The, the, that quite futuristic sounding music, or at least at the time it was futuristic sounding, is a, is a piece called Oxygene by Jean-Michel Jarre, who was a French composer, um, a French digital composer. And the, it's, it's an unexpected song, but it, I think it actually really works. I like having a modern song. I've, I've showed this to, to friends, to French friends who know the song, and they're quite surprised to see the, the, the song in this film, and they don't think it works. But I, you know, I think it does. I think it's, it's unexpected, but I think it works well. And regardless, that song is now indelibly, indelibly linked with the movie. So you can't really separate Oxygen from, from the Gallipoli story now. Um, so I think it works really well. But the first time it's used properly is in that epic trek scene where they get across the desert and eventually find the tracks, the, uh, the horse tracks, the camel tracks that lead them to safety. So just a, just a great scene establishing the relationship between Archie and Frank. So they make it to, per- to Perth. Frank can't ride. They try they get that, that quite funny scene where they try to enlist, but Frank can't get the horse to move. Um, they're trying to enlist in a light horse. Uh, so Frank, uh, so Archie then, they're separated because Archie joins the light horse and Frank then enlists with his mates in the infantry. Um, his three mates, Barney, Bill and Snowy from the railway where Frank had worked. So they enlist in the army together and Archie enlists in, in the light horse. But of course, as we know from our history, everyone was grouped together in Egypt and the light horse was sent to Gallipoli without their horses. So once Archie and Frank re-meet in Egypt... Frank successfully transfers to the light horse because they won't be riding in Gallipoli. So whether or not that was likely, I, I think that would be unlikely given the, the structure of the light horse and the demands that were placed on them. Anyway, it works well for this film. We had to do something to get them uh, to the neck and the neck was, uh, was carried out by men from the light horse. So Archie and Frank are now in the light horse together. Meanwhile, Frank's three mates, Barney, Bill and Snowy, participate in the attack at Lone Pine the day before the charge at the Neck. And in some of the most moving scenes of the of the whole film, Barney is killed and Snowy is very badly wounded and presumably based on the last conversation he has with Frank, uh, he does not survive his wounds. He was in a pretty bad way. So just showing the... And that, I think that was fairly likely. If you had three mates that went in in the attack at Lone Pine, I think there's a fair chance that... One of them would be killed and one of them would be wounded if, uh, at the very least, that there was some of the most savage fighting of the campaign. But then we focus on the the key battle depicted in the film, the charge at the neck by the light horse. And the, the, the quick history of that is that it was an attack across a very narrow strip of land. The strip of land was so narrow, in fact, that the, the, the sort of 600-odd men from, the, from two light horse units, the 8th and the 10th, 
who would make, carry out this attack could not attack in one group because there was not enough ground. So they were to attack in four waves of 150 men each. And it was absolutely suicidal. The ground was covered by machine gun fire. The New Zealanders were supposed to be attacking from the rear at the same time, but the New Zealanders had been held up elsewhere in the battle. And so they were nowhere to be seen when the attack went in, yet the attack was still ordered to go in. And so four waves of men each charged across the neck and were absolutely cut to pieces. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pieces by machine gun fire. One of the most, I think it was Charles Bean that called it one of the most hopeless and tragic attacks that Australians ever undertook during the war. So that's what's depicted in this final scene. And to refresh you about how it was depicted, um, when they discovered that Archie was actually underage and a sprinter, he was asked to be a runner and he said he wanted to participate in the attack. So he put Frank forward to participate in the attack. Uh, so Frank, sorry, not to participate in the attack, to to run as a runner. So Frank was made a runner while Archie was still participating in the attack at the neck. And one of the key moments, which is historically accurate, was the, the moment when the guns stopped firing, artillery guns in support of the attack because watches had not been synchronised. This was actually very true. This happened. Having said that, uh, not much could have changed what was going to happen at the neck, whether those watches had been synchronised or not. So even though that was the case, historically, it, uh, it probably didn't have as big an outcome on the effect of the battle as, uh, as it's probably depicted in the film. So at this point, after the first couple of waves had gone over, attempts to have the attack call off are in place. Um, there's... There's suggestions that marker flags had been seen in the in the Turkish trenches so that some Australians had reached the trenches and were make, waving flags to indicate they were there. That is also correct. That was, a, that was a, a suggestion that had been made at the time, that marker flags had been seen in the trenches. Um, and all of this confusion led, of course, to the famous final scene where Frank is running to the general to get the attack called off. He does get the attack called off but gets back too late. And, of course, the final scene is Archie's demise, uh, depicted brilliantly in the same way as the sprinting scene from the from the opening scene just you know moving moving stuff even sitting here thinking about it now it's i remember seeing it as a kid and just being so moved by it and i I still am today just really wonderful storytelling i think that's what we can say about this film um just a really emotional tale very well told very well acted very well directed written very well by peter weir and directed by him just you know a really great story, really well told, and an emotional story as well. So it's it's a great war film for capturing that emotion. It's a great Aussie story. Now, like I always do in these movie reviews, I say there's two parts to every movie. There's the entertainment value. You know, I'm I'm not a historian who sits there and says every movie has to be a historically accurate accurate documentary. I really enjoy films that uh, that tell a great story using war as the background. A good example of that, as an aside, would be Jojo Rabbit, which I saw recently. And I thought it was fantastic. 
but it was a war film insofar as the fact it was it took place during the Second World War. But obviously it was never intended to be an accurate reflection of what was going on at the time. Yet I still thought an amazingly entertaining movie. So I'm not a historian who, who insists on movies all being documentaries. So I always assess movies based on their entertainment value uh, and their historical accuracy. So I'm going to give this high marks for the entertainment value. It was a great film, a great story, very well told. Now, the historical accuracy, I actually think was pretty good. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad at all, the historical accuracy. The things like the light, the light horse being dismounted at Gallipoli, very accurate. Things like the Eno Salts bottle being sent over in a care package, as we've already established, that absolutely did happen. Even just things about the way the First World War uh, was depicted, you know, was depicted things from the everything from the from the recruitment marches to um, you know the fighting at Gallipoli when they landed at Gallipoli and where they were housed on the slopes in tents and dugouts. I think it was fairly accurate the way the whole thing was done. So overall, very you know quite well done. The attack of the neck I thought was pretty well depicted in terms of the physical aspect of what the men had to go through. I think that was fairly well depicted as well. So all in all, a fairly accurate portrayal of the First World War in simplistic terms, to give you an idea of what it was like to be at Gallipoli and, and engage in that pretty tough fighting. There is a big problem, however, with this movie, and that is at the crucial scene when they're trying to get the attack called off and an officer is on the phone commanding the officer in the trenches to carry on with the attack in spite of the losses. Now, the confusion comes from here is that officer in the film, he was called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robinson, was his character in the film. He was made up. There was no, there was no Lieutenant Colonel Robinson. But the big problem is that he was an Australian in the film. He was wearing an Australian uniform. He had the rank of a lieutenant colonel. Basically, he was depicting an Australian colonel who actually was there at Gallipoli at the charge of the net called Jack Anthill. And that was who Robinson represented. The problem was the actor they chose spoke in that very clipped, aristocratic, Australian upper-class accent that you sometimes hear. We don't hear it very often these days. But you certainly did in the in the seventies and eighties when this movie was made, and you certainly did at the time of Gallipoli, and you, I think you did as well in the seventies and eighties among the acting class. There were a number of actors who spoke in a very clipped, almost British style. That's who they chose to portray this made-up lieutenant colonel. The problem was that anyone who saw that and didn't have a huge understanding of uniforms, etc., as you wouldn't expect most people to, just heard a British accent, and so at that moment it then became etched in Australian understanding that it was a British officer who ordered the Australians to a charge at the neck. And let me say for the record, that was completely untrue. The British were virtually not involved at all in the planning or, or carrying out of the attack at the neck. There was an officer who got on the phone and said, send your men to their death. But as I said, that was Lieutenant Colonel Jack Antill, and he was from Sydney. So it's really clear that we point this out, that whatever faults the British had at Gallipoli, and there were many, the attack at the neck depicted in this film was completely planned by Australians and the disaster that unfolded was the fault of Australians. So I can't be more clear about that. This movie has been responsible for, I think, a large amount of anti-British sentiment directed you know, at the Gallipoli campaign. And there, there are good reasons to, be, to, to have issues with how the British carried out the planning and the operations at Gallipoli. This was not one of them, however. The other thing in the same, uh, the same vein was when, uh, when Frank played by Mel Gibson, gets to the general's dugout to discuss calling off the attack, to plead with him to call off the attack. A report comes in at that time that the British at Suvla are sitting on the beach drinking cups of tea. And again, you know, it's a humorous little anecdote. And there is some suggestion that the British didn't move quickly enough at Suvla. And so that's slightly accurate. 
It's also and also a lot of British men were dying during the landing at Suvla, so the suggestion they were all just sitting around is 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 quite inaccurate. But there are some. You could argue that there are some justifications for saying the British could have advanced quicker at Suvla. But the key point with all of this is the neck was in no way attached to the Suvla landings. The neck was not in support of the British landing at Suvla Bay, which was taking place at the same time. So even if even if you wanted to level that complaint against the British, it had no bearing on the attack at the neck. The neck was a support action. It wasn't even a diversion. Lone Pine was the diversion. The neck was not a diversion. The neck was an attack in support of the New Zealanders who were attacking at Chunuk Bear, the high ground, which is today the site of the New Zealand Memorial. The plan was the New Zealanders would capture this high ground at Chunuk Bear and then they'd come charging down the slope and attack the Turks at the neck from behind. To support that attack, the light horse would also attack across the ground at the neck so the Turks would be attacked from two directions. The huge failing of the neck and the criminal failing of the attack at the neck is the New Zealanders did not succeed in capturing Chunuk Bear and so were nowhere near attacking the Turks at the neck. So the suggestion that the light horse, without that New Zealand attack coming in from behind, which was actually supposed to be the main action, the suggestion that the light horseman could charge across that ground so heavily defended by machine guns to attack the Turks was murderous. It was never going to work. It was always going to be a disaster, as it was. And so the suggestion that the British were sitting on the beach at Suvla drinking cups of tea and therefore not doing their bit to support the Aussies at the neck, again, is completely inaccurate. So these might seem minor points, but that they've been etched into Australian folklore as because this movie was so successful and so popular and because a, a large number of people, you know, their knowledge about the Gallipoli campaign comes from this movie, I, I have to highlight those glaring inaccuracies which have been responsible for a very large amount of anti-British sentiment um, and they're just not true. So just to be clear, the attack at the neck was completely organised by Australians and the murderous debacle it became was the fault of Australians as well, not the British. So I'm not sure if that was actually deliberate by Peter Weir, if he if he wanted to depict the British in that way. At the time, particularly through the 60s and 70s and into the 1980s, there was this real anti-British sentiment that the whole lions led by donkeys theory that the generals had no idea what they were doing and were all bungling idiots and because of that they sent every man to his death to machine gun fire. It's absolutely not true. It's been completely debunked. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. It doesn't even pass the logic test to, to assume that the war could be run that way and it's something I'm very outspoken about. But movies like Gallipoli did a lot to reinforce that by suggesting even inadvertently that it was the British responsible for, for Australian deaths. So... Those are two very important glaring historical errors that do need to be corrected and when you watch this movie again, bear that in mind. So I, as I said, entertainment, I'm going to give it about an 8 out of 10 for entertainment because I think it's a fantastic film, a really great um, great story, a great war film, one of my favourite war films. Historical accuracy, I'm going to drag that way down to 4 out of 10 because I, I, I think the film was mostly accurate but those two depictions of the British that, that basically completely distorted the, the history are really inexcusable in the way that they've, um, they've influenced people's attitudes about what went on at Gallipoli. We should know the story of the Neck and we should see it for what it was, a, a huge disaster that costs hundreds and hundreds of lives, one of the greatest disasters Australian troops have ever been involved in. And when you go to Gallipoli today and you stand at the cemetery on the Neck and know that there's 300 men buried beneath you, yet only about a dozen headstones, just awful. So we should remember the Neck for the disaster it was. It was depicted very accurately for the disaster that it was in that film, 
but a couple of uh, a couple of fairly major historical blunders that uh, that that drag that historical accuracy um, rating down. So I'd say eight out of ten for entertainment, four out of ten for historical accuracy. But I would still absolutely recommend the film if you're a history buff or just an Australian who wants to see a great movie. I'd absolutely recommend Gallipoli. One of the best, one of the best war films you will see. That's it. That's my review on Gallipoli, the 1981 film. Go out and watch it again if you haven't seen it lately. Um, show it to your friends who haven't seen it. Younger people who are listening, go and find this film. It's, I'm sure it'll be on Netflix or somewhere online. Go and find this film and watch it. It's, it's, it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking, Australian filmmaking and an art that has died somewhat, but hopefully will, will come back again in the future. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much for your, for your presence, for hearing what I've got to say about the film, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.